All right. One of the things I love about the fourth Monday of every month is we get a, a visit from Dr. Jonathan Sanford, the provost of the University of Dallas. He's also a professor of philosophy, which even raises him even higher in my in my esteem level. And as, as well, it should. You know, better, better a faculty member than an administrator. <laughs> That's right. And he's uh, what an appropriate topic. I don't know if you heard the beginning of the show. I said, well, we're talking politics right smack dab in the middle of the two conventions. We right. uh, I, I I love these conventions. I watched the Democrats last week, and we'll watch the Republicans this week, and uh, your guest, uh, Dr. Daniel Burns, Associate Professor of Politics, and we're going to bring him on in just a second. Any, you guys have off and running in the fall semester. How, how are things going so we're far? Off, we're off to a great start. We really are. So our, our classes began last Wednesday, and we have all of these safety protocols in place. It's not unlike going to Mass, where mm-hmm. you've got greater distance. Everyone's wearing a mask when they're indoors and, and that sort of thing, and our, our students have really stepped up and are doing a very good job complying. So mm-hmm. what we want to avoid is anything like what's happened in the news. If you've read about University of North Carolina or the University of Notre Dame had some problems with with off-campus activities that led to some on-campus challenges. So yeah. we're really messaging our students well, and, and we, we're just blessed with, with top-notch um, uh, students of, of strong moral character. So we're we're trusting in that, but we also have a number of uh, measures in place for uh, when that trust is, is somehow wounded. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, prayers for all students uh, of all levels and uh, for University of Dallas. All right. What a great topic. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce uh, our guest and the topic, and let, let's let's get after it. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Daniel Burns, Associate Professor of Politics. He's also our Interim Associate Dean of the Undergraduate College this year. And Dr. Burns has has spent the last two years in Washington, D.C., um, some of it engaged in work he was doing of a heavy research sort when he was on sabbatical, and then another year doing some policy work. And given the time, you know, we, we talked to David, uh, Dr. David Upham last month, um, so we're we're giving some special focus to politics, and and there's a kind of of um, fittingness to that, given where we are in the election cycle, but also given where we are with respect to questions of prudence and character and public policy that have been surrounding the COVID-19 situation, as well as some of the social unrest in our country. And so I've been trying to highlight some features of our approach to politics at the University of Dallas, and I think Dr. Burns is a fantastic person to do that for us. So welcome to the show, Dr. Burns. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Sanford and David. It's really a pleasure to be here. So I I, I like to spend a little bit of time uh, introducing our listeners to the the intellectual background of our faculty guests on this show, Dr. Burns, and, and would you mind telling us a little bit about how you found yourself a professor of political philosophy or politics or however you prefer to, to say that? Well, it starts with a bet that a freshman friend of mine made in college 18 years ago when he bet me a large amount of money or so it seemed at the time that I would end up as a professor of political science uh, <laughs> within the next 15 years. And I bet him that because I thought there was no way. My dad is a professor of political science, and I was 16 and thought, why would one want to do the same thing one dad's does, one dad, one's dad does for a living? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that I wanted to be a theologian at one point and um, looked into theology grad schools. I, I ended up discovering, well, a number of things about theology grad schools, which would be a whole other topic. But I, I mainly just learned that um, the interest that I had had in politics as a college student, had there was more reason for it than I had realized. It was because... If you study politics well, 
all the things that I was interested in about theology, about philosophy, about economics, about sociology, you can't be an expert in all those things at the same time, and I'm certainly not an expert in any of those things, but I would say you have to end up talking about the most interesting aspects of every other most other studies, especially of human beings and of, even of their relationship to the divine, mm-hmm. you've got to have some thoughts about that in order to have good thoughts about politics. There are theological claims in our Declaration of Independence, religion and politics, which is the area that I most study, the relationship between the two of those, you know, that you, you have to have some very interesting and deep conversations about God and man just in order to think through questions like, you know, was the most recent Supreme Court ruling on X or Y correct, or who should you vote for in the next election? So I, I really do think that, you know, I, I love every other discipline, and I think they're all fascinating too, but I, for me, I think the most interesting aspects of, of most other fields of study, in one way or another, come into play when you're studying politics well. Yeah, Aristotle says something to that effect, I think, in the politics, where he argues that that politics is the architectonic science. That is to say, it's the science that orders all the others. Therefore, the the student of politics needs to have achieved a certain degree of mastery in every science so that he can orchestrate their order well. I would say that, and I would say, you know, everyone feels it to some extent because we all realize that whether we like it or not, and, and often we don't, but whether we like it or not, the people in charge of politics end up setting limits to our ability to to practice all the other things that we want to do you know if if it's it's very hard to run a church if your government is hostile to that church it's very hard to do science well if your government is you know is promoting bad science i mean there's all sorts of things we see especially in you know various bad regimes around the around the country and occasionally we might say similar things about our own various governments from time to time we could get into that if we need to but you know we all know that Ultimately, the, the limits on human life are to a large extent set by politics, and therefore it really matters that we understand um, who's in charge, who should be in charge of setting those limits, uh, mm-hmm. and, how, and how to do it well. So let me, let me ask you to, to expand a little bit on one of your primary areas of, of research, the, the intersection of religion and politics. And um, I know that, that you have a, a deep familiarity with the works of Pope Benedict XVI, um, Cardinal Ratzinger. And it, it may surprise some of our, our listeners to think of somebody who's in the field of politics doing deep work in um, Pope Benedict XVI's thought, most of which is, one would say, broadly speaking, theological. But you also work in, in, uh, in Augustine and, and some other figures who, who are one might say, primarily theological. So um, for the sake of our, our listeners who, who think of politics as, as um, more naturally divorced from such questions, could you, could you expound upon that a little bit? Sure. Well, I would say, and this applies both to my own research and to the way we teach our students here at UD in the politics department. I mean, there, there are two basic areas that you need to study in order to know a lot about politics. You need to study, on the one hand, the philosophical principles that all politics is based on. And it's, it, you know, it ends up being based on that whether you realize it or not. If you don't know that you have philosophical principles, you'll just take certain probably poorly thought through ones for granted. And if you have time to think through them, hopefully you come to better ones. So on the one end, you've you got to study those, those basic principles and, and books like you just referred to, Aristotle's Politics or, you know, or the Federalist Papers or all sorts of other great texts in the history of Western thought definitely help you do that. I study those books and I study them in, in company with my students. And then on the other hand, you just need to know an awful lot about how empirically politics actually works. And 
that's going to be primarily your own country, so the field of American politics for for Americans, and you know, the field of British politics for Brits, and so on. But then there's also there's also just empirical research on other countries, you know, comparative politics, looking at the difference between democracies and dictatorships throughout the world, international politics, looking at how different countries interact with each other or tend to interact with each other. All of this, there's just a, a massive amount of of empirical information that if you don't have that and all you've done is read Aristotle's politics, you're going to be completely ineffective in, in, in real politics. And, and not just ineffective, but you won't even know what the right answers are. I mean, you don't know what the right marginal tax rates are for this country unless you know an awful lot about our country and its economic system and, and all sorts of things like that. So both are very important. Uh, I'm my, In my own research, I focus on the first, the more of the principles, the political philosophy. But they're both parts of, of what I would call political science, the understanding of, of politics. People, people tend to think of the second, just because of that word science, they tend to think experiments. But you can't really do experiments on human beings when it comes to politics anyways. So it's, it's not that kind of a science. Or at least you should it's, not, yeah. Well, there we go. Thank you. Yes, but it's it's not it's not a a science in the way that biology is a science. But it is it's a field of knowledge, which is why Aristotle called it a science. And Mm -hmm. I think you know our students, we try to introduce them to both. Uh, Certainly, relative to other politics or political science departments in the country, we put a lot more emphasis on the first. Mm -hmm. But that's not because we think. Either is more important than the other. Both are indispensable. Mm-hmm. We just think that most political science departments in the country don't put enough emphasis on the first. Right. So we try to even out that balance. And I've found, certainly from, you know, I, I talked to a lot of our alumni in Washington when I was there these past two years, and they tend to find, you know, they're, they're rubbing shoulders with interns from Harvard and other you know, Ivy Leagues and so on. They tend to find that they know more about the, the principles side of things than, than a lot of their counterparts do, and they know a little bit less about the other stuff. We, we just, you know, we, just because of that balance, we'd set that balance differently. And, and they've all said to me, but what I found was it took me very little time in Washington to catch up on that other, on, on all the empirical stuff. You mm-hmm. just, experience fills that in, whereas the others who never got the philosophical and, and even theological background, you know, unless they spend a lot of time studying Augustine's City of God in their spare time in Washington, which is not a very common pastime in Washington, mm-hmm. they're always going to feel that gap. <laughs> so let me, I, I, I do want to talk a, um, a bit about the work you did in, in policy while you were in D.C. recently. But before we get there, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you might have um, any reading recommendations. I mean, City of God um, might might not be <laughs> the, big one, the, yeah. the, the one for right now. But you know, a, a lot of our listeners who are who are uh, struggling to make sense of the contemporary political scene, who are um, well formed but but um, haven't had a chance to delve more deeply into uh, political theory. What, what, what's a good place for them to turn? What's a text that you would recommend as particularly helpful for for the next couple of months? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, for the next couple of months, if, if you're talking about the election specifically, I would say, I mean, high-quality journalism is is always worth reading, whether it's with people you agree with or disagree with. My mm-hmm. my favorite opinion author, someone I've brought to UD campus once or twice, uh, is Ross Douthat, who writes for the New York Times, who mm-hmm. may be familiar to your listeners, has written some great stuff on all sorts of topics, from education to the Catholic Church and mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of others. But, but you know, everyone should read you know good opinion writers, and they should read ones they both agree with and disagree with, who, who challenge them. But if you're talking about more on the on the side of those principles, the political philosophy. I, to come back to a man you mentioned earlier, I mean Joseph Ratzinger is, is my favorite 20th century author. I think he's he's underrated in every single regard. I don't know anybody 
who I think values that man as highly as they should, mm-hmm. um, except maybe his former students, some of whom I've met and all of whom just think the world of him deservedly. But I think, you know, he's written a few, there are a few collections of essays he wrote, usually talks he gave when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, you know, mm-hmm. on the occasion of the anniversary of D-Day, he gives a talk about D-Day, you know, the, 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 on political or social political topics. Um, the, my favorite of them is called A Turning Point for Europe. He wrote it 30 years ago, right around the, the time of this fall of the Berlin Wall, and he just says an awful lot about what, you know, about the, what the end of communism means for Europe, what Europe is, what we should, what, what the role of Christianity is in a, in a fundamentally secular political system, but that doesn't have to be secularist mm-hmm. political system. Uh, another one, he didn't choose these titles. I don't love all the titles, but they're just names of collections of essays. Values in a Time of Upheaval. Mm-hmm. Those are some more recent ones that he was writing really right up until I think the week before he got elected pope, mm-hmm. uh, including his debate with Jürgen Habermas. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, I would say his, his speech to the German parliament, which he gave in 2011 as pope, is, is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And is, again, an address to political leaders about our common responsibility for, for the future of the world. Um, and anything, I mean, his Regensburg address touches on political themes, but anything, uh, anything you can find that that man wrote about anything, you should always read more of. I think that I just don't think there's any exception to that rule, but especially his sort of his public facing speeches that he gave to a general audience to a non, not even necessarily a Catholic audience, but talking sometimes about what, what role you should think the Catholic church ought to play in society, even if you don't happen to belong to that church. It's, mm-hmm. These are important topics. Mm-hmm. Great. Excellent. Thank you for those recommendations. And uh, so uh, tell us a little bit. I know you, you you can't tell us everything about what you were doing when you were in, in Washington, but but what kind of work were you doing, and and what interested you in getting involved in that sort of work, the the work of uh, nitty gritty policy making? The second question is easy. I've been I've been ever since grad school. So for 13 years, I have been studying a lot of the greatest authors on politics in the history of the Western of Western you know intellectual tradition. Every single one of whom I noticed a few years ago uh, had had some political experience, and I had none. Mm-hmm. So it just started to strike me that it's kind of weird to be saying, you know, Aristotle learned Cicero, Locke, Aquinas. Every one of them either talked to kings or worked for lords, or most of them didn't spend their whole lives in it the way that Cicero did, though some did. Uh, but they all knew something about what it looked like on the ground. And I just thought, if I want to understand these thinkers. I really should have done that at least a little bit, and, and it was not, you know, I, I, I like my job here very much, uh, so I, I was very fortunate that you uh, your, and your office granted me this leave from UD, temporary leave to go get this experience, but well, it was very we're, valuable. We're very glad you came back. <laughs> that was that was the intention, uh, and, and I did, and, but... Uh, but so, you know, t- given that I wanted this experience, I, I was in D.C. anyways for a year on a sabbatical fellowship at, at Catholic University. And so I just spent the time getting to know people there and figuring out where I might be able to fit in for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent half a year as the deputy director of the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Congress. I, I call it the least important congressional committee. It is a very important committee, but it does not report legislation, unlike other committees. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a sort of an in-house think tank for, for Congress, and, and because it doesn't have the responsibility of reporting legislation, it has a lot of freedom to study, you know, it has to study economic trends, but the, the chair gets to define those as he sees fit, and the current chair, Senator Mike Lee, who I, who I work for and who I have enormous admiration for, understands that the foundation of a sound economy is not just in, in the kinds of numbers that economists normally study in the narrow sense, but includes things like strong families and strong communities, mm-hmm. and has gotten together this team of really high-quality social science researchers uh, to study those trends and to figure out what how, how public policy, and especially federal public policy, 
could be reacting better to things like neighborhood breakdown, to things like declining marriage rates, uh, the, the, the social trends that aren't exactly economic, but if they, if, if they continue in this way are, are not going to be good for our economy either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was there for half a year and that was absolutely fascinating. I was, I was helping supervise a team of people, all of whom know much more about, you know, h- how to deal with large end spreadsheets than I do. Uh, and I learned an enormous amount from watching them work. Uh, I then spent the, the second half of the year working in the executive branch, working for the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, I came there because of my background in some issues related to religious liberty. The, the office cares a lot about that, and I was supposed to be working mostly on issues that intersected with that. And then this, this little pandemic hit us, uh, and all of a sudden we found about two and a half months into my tenure there that we had a lot of other stuff we had to, to research, and, and, and not just research, but have have policy decisions made on mm-hmm. and one of those what the, the biggest that came across our desk was there were all these uh life-saving care rationing plans sitting on the shelves of many u.s states mm-hmm. what to do in a pandemic if we run out of ventilators which a lot of people had frankly had not thought much about in our office had had barely thought about before this and all of a sudden these things are getting taken off the shelf people are states are talking about activating these plans and we're getting complaints from disability rights groups saying some of these plans discriminate on the basis of disability or in some cases age. And so we had to figure out in a hurry uh, what the legal limits actually were, what are the guardrails within which, you know, these extraordinarily difficult decisions can be made without without violating federal law and, and what is the role of legitimate medical judgment, what is the what are what are the boundaries for legitimate medical judgment? Those were those were extremely difficult questions and by far the most high-stakes discussions I've ever been involved in. Fortunately, none of those plans has, to this point, ended up being activated, to the best of my knowledge. But, but we did a lot of research to figure out what would be legitimate if they, if they were. And that was very grueling and, in, a way, in its own way, very rewarding because, I've, yeah, obviously, I, I don't know that I'll ever be involved in decisions where um, we're getting it right or wrong matters so much to so many people. Yeah, wow. That's, that's remarkable. So what do you what, when when you think of of um, and you're already in the midst of this right you've you've been reinserted into the life of the University of Dallas you've got this wealth of experience and um, knowledge that that you've taken from this what what do you hope to do with this with respect to our our students and the formation that you and and our colleagues are providing them what what are you hoping to outfit them to do well two things first of all I mean I can't tell you how many times and I, I should have kept a better journal, but I don't. I, I've got enough written down. I'll, I'll have these these in my memory. I can't tell you how many times in the past year I thought this is going to be a great example for my students. So I, I have I have 40 years worth of examples now to illustrate points that come up in these books that I teach. Uh, just here's how it happened. I watched this happen. I saw the per, this person make this type of decision. It's exactly the way. It's exactly the way that Aquinas said it would be. This this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, more generally, I think what. One of the things, one of the many things that, that became even clearer to me as a result of my experience was just a how much uh, how much in our in the functioning of our government depends on the moral and intellectual formation of those who actually exercise power. And this again, this this of course, like everything, goes back to Aristotle. That there's there's really nothing more important than the character of those who rule in any given regime and rule in our in our system, of course, primarily means our elected officials. Well, it primarily means our populace who, who choose our elected officials, the moral character of, of our citizenry. Secondarily, our governing officials. 
which is primarily our, our, those who are elected, but also you know those who are appointed to judgeships and the and the thousands and thousands of people who help them do their job. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's you know a, a U.S. senator. I I've watched it happen. I mean, he is forced to rely so heavily on the research and advice given to him by his legislative assistants. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have time to research every one of these bills himself. He doesn't. If he's a, if he's somebody like Senator Lee, he does an awful lot of reading himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very impressive. But he he doesn't have time to do everything that, that is all, all by himself. That's why he has this staff. Mm-hmm. And so that that those that those staff, the well formed intellectually and well formed morally, there's really nothing in my view that the future of our of our nation's politics depends on more than that kind of formation for young people. Because really, you know, everyone will everyone will name the age a little bit differently, but pick your age, somewhere between 25 and 30, people's moral and intellectual habits tend to more or less calcify. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are exceptions. There are great you know, conversions that happen to people in midlife or later. But for the most part, when you're, when you're 40, you're going to be roughly the same person, same person you were when you were 30. No, that's, that's, so, that, that's a great point. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to have to cut you off there. Uh, Dr. Burns, but we're running short on time. Oh, I'm getting the look. You know, we, well, this goes very quickly, and this was an, incre- an incredibly engaging reflection. And um, the 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 takeaway, uh, the the significance of forming the not just the intellects but the character of our students and others who will find themselves in the organs of of authority at some level is of the utmost. Significance and yes, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, so excellent. You've been a wonderful guest. Thank you very much, Dr. Burns. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Well, Daniel Burns, Associate Professor of Politics, Interim Associate Dean of the Constantine College. Did I pronounce that right? Constantine College. Uh, thanks so much uh, for being on the program, uh, Dr. Sanford. Good to see you again. Great to see you, Dave. Thanks let's, for having me. Let's Jim. do it again in September. Look forward to huh? it. All right. Uh, thanks so much. This has been the University of Dallas segment here on the Good News Show.